you have your Bibles, let's turn to the book of Mark. Mark chapter 1. Last week we began a new series in the gospel of Mark with what Mark calls the beginning of the, the gospel. And it's, a, it's a slang way of saying he's talking about the incarnation. He's talking about the, the once for all time moment when the God of all creation who has eternally existed broke through and put on flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. He did that to redeem those who were born in the flesh. And then last week we met John, who is an Elijah-type prophet, whose job it is to clear the path and to point to Jesus. And his message, repent of your sins. He's basically saying your sin and your pride and your arrogance, they're all the major obstacles that keep you from a relationship with a father who has come to save. And John called people to the wilderness. He called them out there to remind them of their need. And then he called them to the water to to signify their need to be cleansed by God. Then you need to imagine that hundreds and hundreds of people come streaming out to the wilderness to receive that message. Then out of nowhere, we meet Jesus in verse 9. I'm going to read verses 1 through 13 this morning, but our study is really verses 9 through 13. So let's begin there. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared. Baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased." The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. This is God's Word. Let's pray for his help as we study it. Our Father in heaven, we pray that this is no dead letter, no black and white on the pages of Scripture, on the pages of paper, but rather that this is, in fact, what you have said it is, your living word. And so we pray that you would send forth the ministry of your spirit so that we might know you as you are revealed in your word. And also, God, that as you send forth that spirit, you would give us ears to hear what you would say to us, that you would again be willing to use a sinful, crooked stick like me to point this narrow way to Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. When I was in eighth grade, Brian Miller was the man at Brentwood High School, Brentwood Middle School, I should say. And that is, he was so cool. He was really, really good athlete, 
was really smart. He was really good looking. Of course, that's what the girls told me. What you notice is that people who wanted to be cool wanted to be connected, somehow wanted to be identified with Brian Miller, and so they would jockey for position in order to get that spot. I'm sure you had a a Brian Miller in your own school. You think I'm telling the story, changing the name, and it's really Eric Zellner. No, it wasn't me. Now, I'll tell you that, of course, because in some sense, everybody wants to identify themselves with someone who is cool or powerful or someone who can do something for them. And you don't just see that in eighth grade. You see that in politics. You see it in Hollywood. You see it on a college campus. You see it in the workplace. Those who want to be something try to connect themselves with someone who they think is something. And I say that because when the king of the universe entered into this world, he acted on none of those temptations. I mean, God is something. But in love, he comes to connect himself, to identify himself with those who are nothing. Which is why all the gospel writers paint this picture that that Jesus is a friend of sinners. That's in a simple form, what this text is all about. In order to save sinners, Jesus identifies himself with you. Last week, we saw this importance of of John's message about water and his message about the wilderness. And it's not an accident then that we turn immediately, and there comes Jesus, who wants to enter into both water and wilderness. And so our two main points this morning are very simple, Jesus in the water and Jesus in the wilderness. We'll start with Jesus in the water Verse 4 told us that that John's baptism was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And so then you have to wonder, why in the world does Jesus go out to embrace John's ministry? Why does he go out to receive this baptism personally? Because, of course, uh, and you may know this, one of the major truth claims of the Bible is that Jesus has no sin of his own. John wondered the exact same thing. Matthew explains this in a much longer way than Mark does. It's Matthew chapter 3. Jesus came out to be baptized. John would have said, no, 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 don't do that. Jesus, you baptize me. But Jesus says, no. When we, we need to do this in order to fulfill all righteousness. Which in some ways explains very much of what Jesus is doing. Jesus said that. It's fitting to fill all righteousness. And that seems like such a a phrase that we would gloss over. And yet it's bursting with meaning. Because if you notice the connection between verse 8 and verse 9. Mark is painting for us a a backdrop. Which is the kind of canvas upon which he's going to paint the whole passage. Just as Jesus, just as John baptized with water, the Messiah baptizes with the Holy Spirit. That is, he will recreate the hearts of those who would come to embrace Jesus Christ. Which is why the Apostle Paul and so many other New Testament writers tell us, if any man is in Christ, he is a a new creation. In fact, the new creation is the backdrop of Mark chapter 1. What do I mean? I mean that when the king of glory comes, he intends to make a people new. 
And that's the start of this very thing. Genesis chapter 1, chapter 2, it opens with this creation account where God, who, who comes down in Father, Son, and Spirit, hovers over the face of the water, and He creates. Let us make man in our image. Well, that's the same God. Mark cares so much about mentioning Father, Son, and Spirit in this passage because he's, he's saying God is remaking a new people in His image. And then verse 9, Jesus came. In other words, here He is, the God-man who would do the work of creation in, in forming a new people of God. Now, uh, you may have grown up the way I did. Lots of people look at the baptism of Jesus and they say, well, listen, if it's good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me. We should be really clear. John's baptism doesn't exist anymore. And Jesus comes to make sure that you are not staring at the waters of baptism, but instead you're staring at the Christ who's standing in the water. Why does Jesus have to be baptized? Because John's message is essentially the same as the prophets of the Old Testament. This isn't about water. It's actually about a coming judgment. Matthew records this with so much more fullness than does Mark. But, but John's message, repent, is followed by this, Matthew 3.10. The axe is, is laid to the root right now. Which is this picture of a, of a tree, the nation of Israel, the people of God. It's a tree and it's dead and it bears no fruit. And John says, well, God has gone ahead and laid the axe right next to the, to the trunk of the tree and he's ready to chop it down. And John's out there in the wilderness saying, look, if you would spare yourself the judgment of God, it starts with a broken and contrite heart and it's into that message of judgment that Jesus walks into the wilderness. Jesus doesn't have sins of his own to repent of. But when he goes out to the wilderness and he says, John, baptize me, he is not only affirming God's right to judge sin, he's also saying, I'm here to endure the judgment that God's people deserve. Jesus' baptism is about Judgment? Yes. If you remember the story of the Exodus, where you were here last, um, that last sermon last week, I alluded to, to Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, where God calls the nation of Israel his firstborn son. And then after walking through the, the waters of the Red Sea, which was a kind of baptism, God's enemies died in those waters while some people were spared. That's the, the nation of Israel, spared by God's mercy and grace. And what Jesus is doing by going back out to the waters is he's basically retracing the steps from the waters of judgment to the waters of the wilderness where he will be tested. Because you remember, the people in Exodus moved from the Red Sea straight into the wilderness. And then there for 40 years, the wilderness is the, is the place where they meet God. It's also the place where Israel's sonship is proven woefully lacking. In fact, the whole Old Testament is a story of Israel as an unfaithful son. Why does Jesus go out to be baptized? Think about this. 
Do you think there was any temptation for people to think that the forgiveness of their sins was teetering on the volume or the perfection or the fullness of their repentance? Do you think there was any temptation to trust in how much repentance they had? John preaches hundreds of people, thousands of people from Jerusalem and Judea pour out to the wilderness to be baptized. Let me ask you this. Does anybody have any confidence that their repentance was so perfect that it was daily renewed, that it was constantly fully laid bare before God? Any chance? There was a, at least a one woman who confessed her sins of jealousy, her bitterness, came up out of the water, walked home, and found herself again bitter and jealous. Any chance that there was a man who said, John, listen, I have a, a massive problem with lust. And then he walked down into the waters and he was baptized and he came up out of the waters and again found himself caving to the sin of lust. If you know human nature, then you'd be a fool to think otherwise. You see, Jesus goes down into the waters because John's baptism of repentance can't save anyone by itself, not if it's hanging on the perfection of repentance. Think about your own repentance. Is it full? Is it complete? Is your repentance unwavering? Or have you ever, maybe just once, confessed a sin and then a, a, an hour later, a moment later, a day later, a week later, found yourself exactly in the same sin? Jesus says, I'm going to go down in the waters and do this better than any of you, more perfectly, more humbly, more lovingly so that God would have a faithful son and you'd have a way to be saved. What is repentance after all? Well, it is, of course, turning from sin. But it's not just turning from sin. It, it's giving your heart wholeheartedly to the Lord. Before Jesus went into the water, did anyone actually go down into the water and wholeheartedly give themselves to the Lord? Not perfectly. How do I know? Because I know my own repentance, my own failures of repentance, and you know yours. You actually think that you could stand before God in any way on the strength of how sorry you are or how determined you are to make a change that's what Jesus means when he says, yes, baptize me so that I can fulfill all righteousness. I'm going to be the truly righteous representative for God's people. I'm going to be the one who wholeheartedly gives himself to God. Jesus in the water, what's on his heart? You are on his heart. I was on his heart. All of those who would, who would look to Jesus for salvation, we were on his heart. 
So Jesus walks out into the wilderness to meet John and say, no one will ever have this repentance perfectly, purely enough. No one will ever turn enough and walk faithfully from here forward. I'm the perfect son to represent a righteous, an unrighteous, rebellious people. So how many of us try to identify ourselves with those who are cool? Or those who can give something to us. Well, Jesus says, I'm going to deliberately identify himself with those who could do nothing for me. He identifies himself with his people and with their sins. And one writer notices, I think this is an important point, when you look at verse 8 and verse 9, that's the startling emphasis of verse 9, that the bestower of the baptism of the Spirit humbles himself to receive the baptism of repentance. Jesus has no sin of his own, and yet recognize he's carrying sin down into the water. It's yours. Isaiah 53, verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You and I need what Jesus came to offer. Jesus is out there embracing John's baptism so that we will fix our eyes not on baptism as if it's my personal commitment to God, but rather fix our eyes upon Jesus the one and only faithful son who would willingly stand under God's judgment for you in a spiritual sense. He has you on his heart even as he stands in the water. There's no salvation in John's baptism. There is salvation in Jesus. What's on his heart, you were. Now what's on his mind? This is really profound. It's actually a a mystery difficult to comprehend. It's the cooperation that exists in the Trinity the richness of the eternal relationship with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. How can you tell that? Look at verse 10. When he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I'm well pleased. And so the Spirit of God and the Father himself rush to the Son of God as if to affirm on earth in the sight and sound of all of these witnesses that Jesus is here to do exactly what the Trinity intended and agreed upon in the past. Jesus is the Messiah. This is the son who's actually qualified to, to, see, to save his people. In some sense, those who saw it and those who heard it on that day were listening to a profound mystery, this divine fellowship that we, we call the, the Trinity. That is from all eternity. God has enjoyed a kind of fellowship and love within himself long before mankind existed God in this triune nature, that's not three gods, it's one God in three persons. So when Jesus comes up out of the water, the Father covers the Son with words of love and affirmation. You're my Son, I I love you. With you I'm well pleased. The Spirit likewise descends upon Him and envelops Him with power. It's it's actually a glimpse into the, the heart of God. A reality that's been happening in the interior life of the Godhead from all eternity, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit glorify one another. They exalt one another. They commune with each other. Now, certainly that affirms Jesus. But this was done for those who saw it. It's done for you and for me so that you and I might find the comfort that's here. 
Here's why. Sometimes people view the, the Trinity, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, as if they are somehow divided. God in heaven, well, he's, he's angry towards sinners. So the Son has to go to the Father and he's got to plead with the Father, let me go to earth, let me save these wretches. And then he sends the Holy Spirit so that God doesn't get angry with us after he leaves. Maybe the Spirit can clean things up. But you see this detail. Jesus walking up out of the water, suddenly enveloped by the Father in love and enveloped by the Spirit in power to do the work is, is an agreement, you might say. The whole God has is interested in saving sinners like you and me. God's not divided at all over the issue of saving sinners. And so you get the sense, of course, that the very reason that God intended to, to create man was to take this beautiful unity that had been shared from all eternity past and open it so that God would have fellowship with His created beings, those who bear His image. And the truth is, without this voice from heaven on Jesus, you and I might be tempted to fall in one of two directions. One is there would be some people who would just simply presume that God's favor is or was or should always be upon me. Just as if by virtue of, you know, I'm a pretty good kid. I'm a nice person. I go to church. I don't do anything that's big or bad. As if God should just then look upon you and say, oh, you're my beloved son. You're my beloved daughter. And much of the world thinks that way. Others in the world would say, well, if there is a God, then I'm sure he does just look upon me with favor. But you recognize, don't you, that there were lots of people who went out to be baptized in John's day, and none of them did God rip open the sky and say, you're my son, I love you. But he did that on Jesus. Why is that helpful? Because you and I should not take confidence in our own selves. And yet we should take perfect confidence in Jesus as the object of our faith. So without the voice of God from heaven, the other thing is that there would be some, surely, who would feel like I could never be loved by God. I'm so deeply grieved. I'm so tired of my own sin patterns. And you begin to come to the place where you think, surely God is tired of me. I'm tired of me. And that sky ripped open to make sure that you know, yes, of course, you are a sinner. Yes, of course, you are in need of a Savior. But the sky ripped open so that you would know that when you place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that same voice of God will one day be spoken of you, not because you were a good dude, but because you rest under a good son, a faithful son, even Jesus. And so one day God really will say in Christ, you are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter. So in order to save sinners, Christ identifies himself with you. We've seen Jesus in the water. We're going to close with Jesus in the wilderness. Matthew takes 11 verses to say what Mark says in two. It's, it's super quick. Verse 12, the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering 
to him. You see, even in the wilderness, Jesus is willing to identify himself with sinners like us, sinners who are, who are tempted in every way. And so Jesus is out here as one who suffers, but also as one who saves. That's why the same Spirit who descends on Jesus as a dove at baptism drives him out into the wilderness and forces him to, to further live in the, the wilderness. Uh, I've said many times, I think the Bible is full of this, the wilderness in the Bible is a desert. It's a place where through suffering, God's children come to know him personally, but it's really a place where you could never sustain life on your own. It's a place where Jacob met God and wrestled with him in the Old Testament. It's the place where Moses met God at the burning bush. It's where Israel spent 40 years learning about the God whom they were not loving very well. Why did God send Jesus into the wilderness? To prove his faithfulness to God on your behalf. Basically to do what Adam did, failed to do in Genesis. Basically to do what the nation of Israel failed to do. That is to be a true, faithful, submissive son to the Father. And Jesus, I mean, Matthew gives us so much more about this story. He tells exactly how Satan tempted Jesus by twisting Scripture. Satan as he goes out, acknowledges Jesus hasn't eaten in 40 days. And he says, hey, why don't you just turn those rocks into bread? Oh, you want power? I'll give you the nations of the world. Just fall down and worship me. And then Satan says, are you, are you really sure that the Lord cares for you? If you are, then why don't you go up on this high tower and toss yourself down? Let's see if the Lord will protect you. And Jesus responded to every temptation, every question raised by Satan by quoting Deuteronomy. Why Deuteronomy? Because Jesus must succeed where Israel failed. The book of Deuteronomy is the, is the story, along with Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, of Israel's unfaithfulness. And so, just like the nation of Israel... How many times have you and I walked into the desert places of our lives and, and we really have suffered, whether it's physically or spiritually? And I said last week that the desert or the wilderness in the Bible is always the quintessential place where you meet God. And yet here's how it works for most of us on the front side of the desert. We look out into the desert and we say, okay, this is going to be a hard season of life for me, but I'm going to come to know the Lord more fully, more faithfully, simply by being successful walking through the desert. We imagine ourselves getting on the other side and looking back and going, yeah, it was tough. I was, I was tempted. I, I thought maybe I shouldn't trust the Lord, but in the end I did. And I stood firm, and I was faithful in my trial. That's really not how it ever works in the desert. More often the desert is the place where you, like the nation of Israel, are confronted with your massive failures. It's a biblical principle that is meant to strengthen your trust in God who is merciful and gracious. And it's a biblical principle that's meant to weaken your confidence in your own flesh. Yes, the wilderness is often the place where you meet God, but it's not because of your successes. In those wilderness times, 
in your life when you feel lonely, some sort of hunger or spiritual thirst, and you long for God to take care of you, and it's so dark that you begin to wonder if He will, and then how He will. And the wilderness is always the place where your flesh demands to be satisfied. And you think, God, do you even really know my needs? Are you actually going to provide for me? Can you really be trusted? The wilderness is the, is the place, the very spot of temptation where you really do feel like this is more than I can bear. Here's what's frustrating about the wilderness. When you go into those desert places, you already feel spiritually distant. But then when you fail in the wilderness, it almost seems to compound your pain and the distance that you feel from God. That's why Jesus went into the wilderness. So that when the Lord, in His love, carries you to the wilderness... And you look around and think you are all alone, you will know for certain that Jesus has not only been there, but he is there with you still. And whatever suffering the Lord would take you into is small in comparison to the suffering of King Jesus, who the Bible says not only experienced every type of suffering and temptation that you have known, and yet in his suffering, in his temptation, he's the only one standing in the wilderness going, Father, I'm going to obey you. And he does. You and I so easily crumbled. Jesus is out there suffering just like you and me, but more importantly, he's out there saving people like you and me. That's why Hebrews chapter 4 says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. And then the writer says, Then let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and grace to find help in time of need. Friends, take a look at Jesus in the water. And take a look at Jesus in the wilderness. Do you see the comfort the high king of heaven chose to identify himself with you in order to save sinners like you and me. This is the good news. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would cause it to, to land deeply in our hearts and that through the ministry of your spirit, you would help us to know you and to enjoy you through your word and spirit. In Christ's name, amen.